Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today, we have a great double bill of guests. Savas Niafidu and Ben Carter of DeepBridge have a lot of experience in life science startups, both as investors and entrepreneurs. Today, we discuss the non-therapeutic side, finding and validating businesses, internationalizing, regulation, and of course, how AI is affecting and will affect the market. If you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or follow the links in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Savas Niafidu, who is Chief Investment Officer, and Ben Carter, who is Head of Life Sciences at DeepBridge Capital. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Hi, Brian. Hello. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you please briefly tell us how you became involved in venture capital? I'm going to let Savas go first because he's responsible for, for me getting involved in venture capital. <laughs> yeah, I've been, you know, working in, in capital markets for a very long time. You know, worked at places like uh, JP Morgan and Bear Stearns, Pamio Gordon, uh, Shaw Capital on the advisory side. And, uh, you know, all the time I, you know, felt that at some point it would be you know, a good uh, move to sort of look towards, uh, you know, acting as a principal. And um, what my wife probably call a midlife crisis prompted me in 2015, <laughs> uh, 2014 to go and become a CEO and a founder of a telemedicine uh, startup. We exited that in, um, you know, back end of 2015. And, you know, that time, uh, you know, Deep Bridge Capital was a, a, an EIS investor that was known to me. Ian Warwick, uh, the founding partner, um, invited me to uh, set up the life sciences business for, for Deep Bridge. And that uh, really was how um, I, I came into it. I started here in January 2016. And I'm going to answer Ben's question now as well. Um, you know, in that Ben was actually uh, employee number one in uh, said telemedicine business uh, as my uh, chief commercial officer. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, when we when we exited that business, um, he decided to uh, exit stage left and go and become uh, a CEO of his own uh, business. You know, but uh, about a year in, maybe a year and a half in, or two years, I don't know. We managed to twist uh, his arm behind his back and uh, joined us here to bring, you know, what we needed at the time, which is, uh, you know, commercial now, commercial expertise to actually put through uh, the portfolio. Uh, do you have a better answer than that, Ben? Do you want well, to go? Well, well, to be fair, Sam, <laughs> as, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so good you've uh, you've hired me twice. I think uh, that's, <laughs> that's what I constantly tell you. But I think, now you're exactly right. I mean, prior to, uh, to joining Savas uh, at the telemedicine business, I'd spent the best part of 10 to 15 years in a variety of scale-ups and startups um, you know, in and around you know, healthcare, digital health. Um, so well-versed in that area. You know, it, it was really good fun working with Savas first time round. You know, as, as we say, we exited that business. I went away for a year or two while Savas continued to grow kind of the, the life science business at DeepBridge. And um, I think when you had 20 or 30 companies, uh, Savas, he, he, you know, the phone calls became more regular um, and the twisting of the arm became more regular. And I have to say, it's been, it's been great. I've been here five years now and really enjoyable working with early stage and growth companies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you want to give us a, a brief introduction to DeepBridge as we've sort of mentioned it a few times already? Yes, I'll go. Have a go at that. Um, you know, DeepBridge is uh, an EIS um, investor. Uh, we have uh, around about two hundred and fifty million pounds funds under management. Uh, have been going since uh, two thousand and twelve with the vision of uh, reimagining and, and re-engineering really the early stage growth capital market in the UK. Uh, as Ben has already alluded to, uh, one of our key ingredients, if you like, here at Deep Bridge, is that pretty much to a man, um, we have people who have actually either founded businesses or grown businesses, exited businesses. So, you know, this is not a bunch of, um, you know, finance people, you know, trying to do more financing. Uh-huh. We've been uh, on the call phase ourselves, uh, you know, which is where often founders, um, you know, come and see us. Uh, and we, we think we, we can add something to that, uh, to that equation. 
So what I wanted to do today was actually focus on life sciences, because obviously Ben's job title, he's head of life sciences. I think, Savas, you had that title previously, and obviously your background is clearly in this area. And we've had people discussing therapeutics before on the podcast. I know you do invest a little bit in therapeutics, but I think your focus is elsewhere. So when we talk about life sciences from your perspective, what do, you, what do we really mean? Well, I'll jump in there, given that Savas has done a little bit of talking over the last couple of questions, uh, Brian. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you mentioned therapeutics, so we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll steer clear of that. But as you do say that we, you know, we do invest in that space. You know, one of the things that Deep Bajar is an early stage in growth investor. So we tend to invest at pre-seed, seed and kind of you know, series A investments. One of the things that you'll be well aware of is you know, therapeutics, drug discovery to, to bring a new you know, product to market, you know, looking at hundreds of millions of pounds so we don't really operate in those spaces you know we, we do look for specific opportunities and that's where you know great assets you know university spin outs with you know core great science and fabulous management teams can really play a part but i think if you look across our life science portfolio you'll see that you know we've been very very prolific in you know areas such as digital health which is i guess unsurprising given both mine and uh, Savas's background in this area. Medical device technologies uh, is an area that we've been investing in for, you know, the best part of you know, seven to, to eight years now in this space. Uh, so I, I guess if you looked at, you know, across the portfolio, they would probably be the two areas where a high proportion of our investments are. When you look across life science, there's probably over 40 different subcategories um, and so I could go into more detail and talk about the different areas within digital health that we invest in but I, th- I guess broadly they would be t- the two areas where we've been you know most prolific over the last number of years I mean would you agree with that Sabas? Yeah I mean look I mean ultimately you know we know that a very vast proportion of the GDP or, or you know the world GDP is spent on healthcare right you know the, you know starting US GDP 20 percent Europe more like sort of, you know, 10 to 12%, you know, UK towards the bottom end of that, you know, even in developing countries, it, you know, it's upwards of two, three, four, five percent of GDP. But healthcare, you know, is a very wide, you know, waterfront, is you know, uh-huh. is a, a broad church. So what we look to do at DeepBridge, you know, is to provide risk diversification. You know, it's and, and when you look at a balanced portfolio, we look at capital growth and that's, you know, what we obsess about uh, that's you know something which governs all of our uh, investments at least at the starting point um, is that you know we want to have things which you know will give us access to all interesting areas of um, of, of life sciences and healthcare and also have varying exit horizons um, in therapeutics Brian as you alluded to you know, we've got, we have 40, you know, around 14% of our life sciences EIS funds in therapeutics company. And that's probably about right where we want to be. You know, we don't want to have overexposure. You know, you know, we, we set out to have about 15% and we're about there. So we'll continue making therapeutics investments, but it's not going to be the dominant factor. But with therapeutics, with the technology development cycles being often upwards of seven, eight, ten years, it takes a long time for a business to get to an exit opportunity. And and that's just the way it is. In digital health, the exit opportunities come sooner. Businesses can scale up, become commercially um, self-sustainable sooner. And you get to you get to find out you know, quickly whether this business has got legs or, or it doesn't. And one thing in venture that, I, you know, I've, I've, I've learned is, you know, you want successes, but, you know, if success is not going to come, you want things to actually, you know, die quickly. There's nothing worse than spending a lot of your time, so put, you know, opportunity cost of capital uh, on something that meanders and eventually dies. Uh-huh. It, it really is a waste of everyone's resources and everyone's time. Not least of all, you know, it's a small proportion of our time, but, you know, for the founders themselves, they want to find out. We get them to ask the tough questions uh, early. But again, the point I'm making to your question, you get to actually find those value uh, infection points quite early on with digital health. And between digital health and therapeutics, you've got a whole vast of other 
tools and services, for example, you know, no one gets excited about that, but, you know, it's something that if you invest in the right people can give you good capital growth um, and, you know, the business can become self-sustaining quite quite early on. Then you've got diagnostics, you've got screening, you've got, you know, med tech. We've even got a business in, um, in you know, in, in, uh, in the area of uh, longevity, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, broad portfolio, as I said. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned devices at area, and that's something I, I, I think I'm particularly interested in because you, you mentioned the virtues of telemedicine and, and effectively, you know, in some sense, they, they've got a lot in common with sort of the SaaS models and that they're very prevalent, I think, throughout sort of venture capital and, 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 and EIS. Device investment is a lot less common. And I, I was wondering if you could maybe sort of if we could maybe dig into that a little bit, because I think there's some challenges with devices, both in terms of, you mentioned capital, let, look, time, all, all these things are issues in there. And I think that puts some people off, but at the same time, it, it, it's definitely a two-sided sort of discussion in that, you know, that there's plus points of that as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, again, I, um, I'll, I'll pass it on to, to Ben in a minute to sort of give his view because he's, he really is on the cold face with, with, with a lot of those. But ultimately, you know, engineering, it's one of the real strong points of this country. You know, we don't have to look very far, you know, Imperial College, University of Manchester, you know, obviously, you know, Cambridge. Oxford. There's some really good engineering that's, that, you know, that's available, you know, in the UK. And that has given rise to, uh, you know, a, a, a whole host of, you know, businesses within healthcare that rely on that. We've got, uh, you know, a really good investment, which is up in, uh, in Glasgow, you know, employs 40 engineers, hardware and software engineers. You know, we think rather than try and be too clever about what we choose to, to invest in, let's have a look at what, you know, our immediate region that we look at is good at. And let's try and, and, you know, because often... Well, you say immediate region, you're based in Northwest, aren't you? We're based up in the Northwest, um, but our, our investments are not necessarily to the, you mm-hmm. know, to the Northwest. And um, as I said, you know, with the Glasgow example, you know, it is a really strong team. And in early stage investment, you don't look to invest in a business having mitigated all the risks. It requires a degree of, of imagination. What can this group of people achieve? Now, I you know, absolutely agree with you. The reality is that often in devices, the 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 the, uh, the regulatory journey is almost as tortuous as it is in in therapeutics. However, you do get an earlier opportunity to have what you know what we call a guidance panel. Uh, you know, often you know other big industrial players that you can do JDAs with that you can actually a, uh, a joint development agreement. So you can then uh, actually start getting a sense from the marketplace. Is this something that could be the best thing since sliced bread? Or are we drinking our own Kool-Aid and supporting something which eventually nobody's going to want to buy? Because what we try here at Deep Bridge to get away from is, um, you know, uh, casino investment. You don't just fall in love with something and say, that's going to change the world. We believe in trade validation. We uh-huh. seek trade validation and we look to find proxies to give us that trade validation. And we steer our companies towards that, whether it's using a user panel or, or a guidance panel. Floretic is a good example, and I'll pass it on to Ben to talk a little bit more about that. We get them to talk to their customers very early on. And often that is the best way to actually get a licensing deal or a, a reference customer. And even within devices, that's an important thing. And that happens more often than therapeutics and more quickly than therapeutics. If we get that proxy, I'm not going to say we are satisfied. We're never satisfied. <laughs> but that, that, that's, that for us is you know, a better management of that risk than in therapeutics where you'd be invited to write a check for 100 million before you mm-hmm. even go into phase three trials. And, the, you know, and, and you know, given the size of our fund, 
doing something for five to 10 million where you will get some trade validation, we think is a better risk management um, for you know for our portfolio than it than it is in our, in other areas. Ben, do you want to be more specific with, you know, we've got several. You know, obviously, Foretic is one of them. You know, we've got. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll talk to a few of your a few of your points, Savas. I mean, you know, first and foremost, here to answer your question, Brian, and there's there's, I think if you look at the data, I mean, the World Health Organization, you know, suggests that there's over two million medical devices now on the market. So I think you know it's vitally important that there is an element of you know regulation. Uh, it, you know, it, it, I mean, patient outcomes, you know, safety, efficacy, you know, all of these types of things, you know, vitally important. And I think you know. Again, just looking at some of the data in terms of the the time to, to market or the the cost to actually fully develop a medical device, you're looking at around thirty. It's in dollars, unfortunately, but around thirty one million dollars on average to develop a, a medical device technology. I mean, of course, there's clearly differences mm-hmm. between a class three novel device and you know and a class one, but. Ultimately, sorry. Right. What, what 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 do you mean by class three or class one? I mean, class three could be kind of a, a pacemaker, you know. For instance, um, you know, whereas class one device, you can you in essence can self certify. So there's, there's there's a variety of differences, um, you know, across the market. And and again, when we're looking at medical device technologies, we go into this with our wide, you know, with our eyes wide open. You know, do we have the ability to you know to provide capital across the entire lifespan of this business and one of the things we haven't really touched on on this you know on this chat so far is around you know co-investment uh you know one of the things that we see as vitally important you know to the portfolio is to have other great funders stand alongside deep bridge not only to bring you know the additional capital required to take these products to market but also bring to the table some of their experience, you know, some of the teams that they have, you know, on offer. To, to a number of Savas's points, I mean, clearly, you know, myself and Savas don't have the answer to everything and we can't be experts in each and every aspect of, of life science companies or even the journey of every single life science company. So we have a, a model around portfolio directors that can sit on the board of, you know, of our investment, you know, our investments and, you know, to a person that they bring different skill sets and, and, you know, we'll have a variety of these people on the boards of the companies at, you know, any one time, whether they're adding the commercial acumen to, to roll this technology out, or it could be related to kind of regulatory pathways and how do they ensure that they are, you know, spending the appropriate amount of capital to get the device through, you know, regulation and not wasting, you know, significant capital because, you know, that is something that a lot of companies can do if they don't have the right people around the table. You know, so in terms of kind of, you know, early stage validation, I think that's important. And when we're sitting down kind of day one with our management teams, you know, we're not looking at this as a, you know, we're looking at bite-sized chunks here. You know, how do you validate the market? How do you ensure, as Savas says, you're not drinking your, your own Kool-Aid? Because <laughs> yeah. founder bias is a massive thing in VC. You know, you'll, you'll see it, you know, within a significant amount of the you know early stage companies where they you know if you've got a professor you know you've got you know a, a scientist you've got an engineer that wants to develop something in their own style you, you've got to have people like myself and Sav who can you know ask the tough questions get them to ensure that they're validating you know their assumptions building that guidance panel building that user panel so that at every stage they're getting the appropriate feedback uh, and it will lead to, you know, you know, customers. So, I mean, Savas mentioned um, Floretic, is, which is, you know, a, a company based uh, down in Bristol, you know, looking at you know, antimicrobial resistance. And, you know, one of the things that we've been doing with, well, you know, we obviously hold them to account, but they've been working with one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, you know, as one of the kind of, you know, early adopters of the the technology. Yeah, and that's led to a you know a significant um, six-figure order in the last three months, and you know it's it, it provides them with that you know, flagship customer that they can then you know support them to adopt the technology, and then they can roll out once they've got the data from that particular you know customer. Yeah, it seems to me one of the challenges. I mean, certainly applies to any technology, but the life science in particular, in that validating how good a technology is because. It's very easy to be aspirational, as you mentioned. Founders are, by nature, hugely optimistic people, possibly sometimes delusionally optimistic. You don't have necessarily 
the market validation in terms of people buying something because they're not allowed to because of regulatory things or or because actually the lead time in hardware is is quite is quite long, so they've got something that's part way along the line. How do you find a technology that you're confident will work? I think you know, as part of our you know due diligence, you know we we look into lots of different aspects, and that there's lots of different elements of DD, whether that's legal, commercial, product, um, you know, IP. You're right. It's it's very very difficult to you know, to fully understand whether you know the this is something that people will use. I mean, if you look at digital health, and I'm probably side you know ste- stepping aside here, the question if if you're looking at kind of digital health products, it, things like utilization data is something that we you know we we always want to see, and and of course it's vitally important to us. It's perhaps one of the most important metrics that we we look at. Yeah, no, I mean you know it, it's it's. Um... You know, it is the million-dollar question, Brian. And I guess the answer to that, the, the the simple answer to that, is is that in therapeutics, it would take you ten years to get to know uh-huh. whether anyone would ever use that. And you know, I've been involved, you know, in technologies in therapeutics which got to market and nothing happened. Um, and and you know, again, you live and die by your by your data, but that takes a long time to come. When we're assessing technology, you know, with devices, we, you know, refer to what I said earlier. It requires a degree of imagination. You cannot mitigate every risk. Yeah. But if you've spent enough time to validate the problem you're trying to solve, then in your technical due diligence, do you think that the data that you've got to hand allows you to have a reasonable expectation that if you can then repackage that bit of wire that is sticking out and that thing which, you know, looks like, you know, it's a university experiment into something that looks like, you know, some sort of device, can you imagine that that might actually change the care pathway uh, in in any way? Can it have a differentiation? Can it it have an advantage, be it on price, um, speed, you know, or, or better, basically, you know, can it can it be more accurate? For example, you know, better, cheaper, faster. That's the mm-hmm. that, that's the sort yeah. of motto that we, we look at. But also, you know, without wanting to, you know, sugarcoat things, we get things wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we looked at the cervical cancer market a while back, and we thought, you know, look, you know, this is a market that hasn't really changed since the pap test, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I don't know how long, uh, you, know, but, you know, almost 100 years ago. Y- you look at, you know, a business like Zilliqa, for example, which has not only got a device that allows you to do better screening of cervical cancer, but it's actually got a whole platform technology with IP that allows you to use that platform you know, EIS, you know, in a, in a way that you can actually measure current that goes through a tissue and allow you to actually get a clearer uh, picture of whether that, that tissue is diseased. Even if you get that stonking ligure data, for example, in Zilliqa's case, in low-grade lesions on the cervix, you have a 70% better um, accuracy in diagnosis using Z-Scan, which is the Zilliqa device, than you would with the current gold standard, which is you know, spraying acetic acid and looking with the naked eye uh, at the cervix. Even with that stalking data, even with a problem validated, even with a great technology, it doesn't mean that commercial success is going to be in a straight line. Screening has been one of those categories that has been decimated by you know the pandemic and by the current uh, supply issues uh, within 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 healthcare. It's always it was always going to be a slow burn getting screening, and it would always probably have been better served in the hands of one of the big eight hundred pound gorillas, be it Philips or you know what have you, to actually introduce better screening, you know, kit, um, it, you know, into hospitals. But that's part of what we do. We will make investments, mistakes will happen. But in the case of Zillico, we had to pivot the business and we looked at 
you know, how can we get this product into the US market as quickly as possible? Because there, if you've got the data or 70% better accuracy of diagnosing cancer than you would with the current gold standard, they bloody well have to use it. Otherwise, there's, there's consequences. So, you know, not all roads lead west. So we don't always just look at west because with Zilliqa, we also looked east. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it requires an EIS investor that has got that domain expertise like we do um, to be able to roll with the punches at times and um, have the adaptive intelligence to pivot uh, or to take a different direction. We are the epitome of being patient investors. Because the easiest thing to do, if we truly thought the technology was rubbish, would have been to just basically kill that. But no, the technology is great. The data is great. You know, we're yeah. saving people's lives. We're just not doing it in enough hospitals, by enough doctors, or at a high enough price to allow us to be scaling commercially at the level that would make this venture-backed business towards an exit. But we'll find a way to do that because this technology deserves to be in the marketplace. So I hope that answers your question. It's a very long-winded way. <laughs> no, 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 no. It sounds like a, 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 a really good example there. You mentioned their internalization and internalization. I can't even say the word at the moment. Internationalization in terms of, I say, going east, going west. Uh, we had your colleague Ian Warwick on a while ago talking about getting technology companies into the States in particular. It seems to me this is a, in healthcare, there's an additional challenge in that international regulation. I I, I am not sure I understand it, but there could be a bit more consistency, shall we say. To what extent does that actually affect how how you commercialize? It's a case of, oh, the States are the biggest market, therefore we go for that, or you mentioned looking elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, often it's... um you know, it comes down to maths, right? What's my ROI, whether I, you know, whether I go west or east, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I need to invest something. You know, I'm not going to say the last uh, British band to uh, conquer America was was the Beatles. Uh, You know, many have Mm -hmm. tried, but, uh, but, you know, but ultimately, you know, being, being, uh, again, based in the Northwest, we have to, um, we we have to bang the drum of, uh, of of Liverpool bands. uh, (laughs) Don't we, we Ben? You know, but, 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 but ultimately it will come down to those, you know, you've got to get away from your top down analysis, which is the U S is the biggest market. Let's go there. Mm -hmm. And you start doing, you know, your bottom up analysis, you start looking at, you know, literally down in the weeds, building your model, how much is it going to cost me to run a phase three trial? Uh, how much is it going to cost me to go and pay a an FDA uh, specialist consultant to navigate me through the whole process and uh-huh. allow me to get my 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 registration uh, done as quickly as possible? And if I do that, you know, and I've got this addressable market, and you know what, you know, so you actually have to build it bottom up and then you say well do you know what on the balance of probability this might take me three years but it is worth doing it because Uh it's going to give me this ROI so it goes to Ben's point earlier on we build good board around our successful investments we make sure that we empower that business with the human capital that it requires from board level so that when these things are being presented as opportunities by management teams, we can ask the tough questions. But once we've decided to do something, then you have to be able to actually see it through. You've got to provide the capital to do it, you know, and you've got to provide often the connections and and, and the knowledge of those of those international markets um, to allow you to get things to get things done. Yeah, and I think I mean just adding to that point, Savas. I mean, you know, whenever we see you know pitch deck one from a from a company, you know, always within their assumptions is that they're conquering you know the U.S. markets, you know, year seven, ten down the line, and and so we we have to just look you know through that. And when you look at a number of our portfolio companies, you know, people do think it's important to internationalize. I think if we saw a pitch deck where you know, they had the NHS as their only customer and that's how that they were going to provide the success of this business, then we all know it takes a significant number of years for technology to be adopted in the NHS. But 
it doesn't always have to be the US if there is a territory that makes you know complete sense for that you know organization to move into whether it's slightly lower hanging fruit or maybe the regulatory environment is is easier in that particular you know I, I was going to ask that because it seems to me we, we spoke about the US and you know the obvious attractions and the regulation are there other markets that you consistently see well actually getting vices into this other market is is more straightforward and therefore that makes the ROI sort of mandible, even though the market's smaller. Yeah, I, you know, w- without question, Brian. I mean, that there, you know, without going into each and every you know country, mm-hmm. because I don't profess to be uh, you know an expert on regulatory world, you know, regulatory <laughs> environment worldwide. But you know, one of the things that we we regularly see is that, you know, of course, all companies want to get in and conquer the US, but they will within their decks, you know highlight areas you know and maybe you know emerging territories where actually the regulatory environment is not quite so you know is, is, is not as strict and they are able you know in the early days to be able to do that i think even if i look at the uk for instance as well you know we've got examples of our portfolio where day one they approach us and you know they, they see the nhs you know as their route to market but we've got to not forget that, you know, Accurate as an example, looking at, you know, hydration monitoring in, in elderly individuals. So there are 20,000 care homes in the UK, you know, and, you know, social care. Um, you know, there are lots of areas that doesn't have to be the NHS where actually they're able to, you know, utilise, pick up the data, and then it, it almost acts as a, as a test bed for them to be able to validate a market, some assumptions, get some quality data, and then quite often that leads into, you know, the, the the next tick in the box, which would be the NHS. And and is there any sort of benefit in terms of if you get improved in one approved in one country, that has benefits for approval elsewhere? Is there sort of any sort of synergy or is it, are most countries sort of just sort of you just gotta do them on a case by case basis? It, it, it's um it, you know it's a complex question brian and i think yeah, you, no. you know, it doesn't really you know it doesn't it, it, you can't sort of use for every category you know but there there are you know clearly regulatory bodies that are you know renowned through their you know their access or the utilization of 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 uh, important key opinion leaders you know the likes of the MHRA in the UK, the FDA in the US, the EMEA in, in, in you know for the for the rest of Europe, even places like China, although they will not admit it, you know when you're having discussions with you know Chinese authorities, they would always basically refer to those other agencies. So you're right, there is read across, but it you know it, it's you know it's not often the case that you say oh it's been approved in the US tick in the box you can come in uh-huh. the herd mentality does exist if you're a regulator put yourself in their shoes you know they 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 will look towards deriving some comfort um, in the fact that something has been approved as well so that doesn't again that shouldn't be misunderstood with geographic rollout is easy in uh-huh. life sciences is still long and torturous but if it's commercially viable to expand into mexico or kenya or you know india or china then it is commercially viable and 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 you should do it as ben suggested earlier we will get these financial models for pretty much every single startup we look at because ultimately they focus at an early stage on the product. Can I actually get this done? They've satisfied themselves that the problem exists and they want to go with our founder bias that, again, Ben talked about, make it and they'll come. And our instinct is do not make it <laughs> and they'll come <laughs> because that's not what our instinct tells us. And and often we have to challenge those, those assumptions because they – look at that and they say okay you know is my is my idea is my product going to allow me to be scalable and that's the sort of question that allows you to define whether a business is a venture business or whether it's a lifestyle business and if it's a venture business they want to see scalable and often they will look at scalability from internal internalization and 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 they think oh that's just something that follows through sequentially we again, as I said before, 
try and do that bottom up. Let's look at the timescales and then add some buffer and then add some more buffer because things take longer. Mm-hmm. You know, because businesses ultimately, they don't die because they've got rubbish technologies, uh, it contributes. They, 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 they die because they run out of money. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, unless you can get cash flows from revenues and sales or from external investors, you will run out of money uh, and you will die. So, you you know, we look at those things very carefully. I can imagine. I'd like to turn to a flavor of the day in terms of AI because it's something everybody's talking about. And I hear two sort of debates in terms of applying to sort of the medical world in terms of one is it's going to revolutionize everything because you can scale it and already you know somebody's got a tool that's 70 percent better than a doctor and diagnosis or whatever and on the other hand there's plenty of data that you know it just makes things up and it misses a lot and it's far from perfect so we're, we're kind of in that sort of valley of uncertainty a little bit how much difference do you see AI make, actually making now in in what you're doing? Look, there's a there's no there's no disguising that there is a huge supply and demand imbalance in health. You know, you only have to look at you know waiting times and um, you know escalating cost of supplying healthcare. So, if a new technology like AI uh, is going to come in and is going to provide some solutions towards towards that, then I think that will be welcome, uh, you know, across the piece. AI is an emotive subject for a lot of for, uh-huh. for a lot of reasons. Um, I think also AI is miscategorized by people that don't truly understand, you know, what it is and how difficult it is to truly get a good AI as is applied in in in, in healthcare. Things will come up in in the next few years, uh, and I think we'll, we'll be looking at those things in a you know not not in a you know the AI is going to devise a, a model that is going to allow a heart transplant. That's probably not going to happen anytime uh-huh. soon. But if you're looking at dentistry, for example, you know where you know or radiology, where it is black and white, whether you know an analysis of an image. Uh-huh. You know, can be done using computer vision or some kind of algorithm that sort of you know compares and contrasts and pinpoints the things that, that that need to be looked at. In veterinary medicine, for example, you know we've got a, an investment in in a in a telemedicine veterinary business called called Visivet. You know, if you could find or or even traditional telemedicine for humans, if you could find tools that allow you to triage in an automated way. Because ultimately, those symptoms, whatever they are, is it 100, is it 500, is it 600 keywords, they are repeated, right? You know, it's not, you know, it's not beyond the wits of man to find an algorithm that be able to sort of, you know, take those keywords and, 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 and provide some sort of level of triaging. If that happens and it, and it, and it allows the doctor to be able to actually, or, or the vet, to be actually spend quality time you uh-huh. know, with the patient or or, 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 or the uh, or the pet that, that needs a, a diagnosis, you know, if the prescribing of pharmaceuticals can be done in a in in a better way because you've got data that allows you to pinpoint the right type of, of antibi- type of antibiotic for the right type of you know bacteria that that might be. Uh, I stay here. I think those are things that are going to be absolutely coming away. And I think as a, as a society, we we need to find a way to regulate it so that everyone feels comfortable, but but also to accept that they will be part of of, of life. Uh, as an as an aside, Brian, this is, a, is a, an anecdote. I, I, you know, this is something that Ben would have heard a million times from me. I'm old enough in the tooth, in you know, to have been around when um, you know software was sort of coming through and people were uh, you know asking whether we're spending too much time on the internet and ebay was a thing back in the late 90s you know there was i can't remember whether it was 99 now or 2000 
but they wanted to change the the the, the user interface, the UI of, of eBay. And uh, they did it overnight. They went from this sort of yellowish color to a more white. And it was absolute <laughs> people were just, you know, you've changed my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so they reverted back to the yellow thing. And they eventually allowed that to fade over a period of time mm-hmm. into the bright white that they wanted to have that we know yeah. now and we see. So, mm-hmm. you know, did it bother anyone? No, it didn't. You know, and I think in 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 time we will get to recognize that AI is going to be a useful mm-hmm. tool. Yeah. 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 It seems to me that the the the, the, the challenge is kind of almost like an, an error tolerance. So I've seen this debate in self-driving cars where the debate about the sort of accidents that would be accepted in people in a sense, and not that we like them, but you know, the accident rate is people will not be tolerated by AR-driven cars. And I wonder if in healthcare there is that same debate in terms of doctors make mistakes. With the best will in the world, you know, mistakes do happen. Um, even if AI is doing better, if AI is not perfect, can we tolerate that? And I think... It, it, yeah, no, it is. And I think, you know, certainly just to add to kind of some of Savas's points and, you know, and even your initial question, uh, Brian, is that it's definitely, you know, flavor of the month. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's without question here to stay. Um, you know, we, we, you know, invest in a significant number of university spin outs. And, you know, Bohurst wrote an article, you know, a couple of months back. And, you know, in terms of emerging sectors, AI was very much at the top of that. And actually there were, you know, twice as many AI spinouts, you know, from universities in the UK as any other sector. So, yeah, and I think, you know, certainly in the UK and, you know, the US, one of the things that we do have is some of the richest healthcare data in the world. You know, we've got cradle to grave data sets. And actually I think, you know, with these rich data sets, it's where really you know, the, the the element of AI can come in and start to support you know routine diagnostics and you know support clinical decision making. It doesn't have to replace, and I think that's probably in the early stages what will be in, in a supportive you know sense. You know, but as the data sets are you know populated, then I think you know it will become more accurate and you know, moving forward, you never know where it's going to get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like it's still more something for the future than than a current, right? It's solving problems now for you guys. Yeah, and and if you look at kind of government white papers, you know, th- there's been many out there you know, and, and talking about you know reimagining the life science sector by 2030. Yeah, and one of the four key pillars within that paper was AI. So you know, it, it's seen as a fundamentally important you know part of the future of healthcare delivery and i think it is the future you know or certainly it'll be part of the future in the here and now i still think we we don't see it necessarily um you know on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. okay okay and are there any other trends or important things that may be more influential at the moment do you think I'd say that, I mean, really, Brian, I mean, you, you kind of answer your question, and I think the, the university data just relates to that, that the single biggest trend, you know, we are seeing to date in terms of investment opportunities is and has AI at the center of it. Mm-hmm. All right. So that is the, the big trend at the moment. Yeah. Not all of it, not all of it is actually true to form, uh, Brian. So we, you know, <laughs> that's something that, you know, obviously you know we 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 look at you know very deeply and and um you know because people 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 use the word ai when really they mean a different type of algorithm uh, or even having an aspiration to ai but if every company that ever professes to have ai truly had ai there wouldn't be enough ai engineers to actually work <laughs> someone is working extra time <laughs> you know or, or uh, people are just aspiring to, to those things so you know as ben said you know ai is a huge thing i think we need to find a solution to that supply and demand imbalance in healthcare and i think technology will pay you know will play a, a, a big part of that you know we still probably need to you know, look at uh, uh, other areas like education. We need to train more doctors. We need to train more nurses, and those are important areas. You know that are that are coming up, and 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 clearly, screening. And again, they're not mutually exclusive to AI. Screening is going to be an important screening and and self care. Um, and and if you can sort of uh, try and move away all of the burden from 
diagnosis and making people actually be healthier uh, away from uh, the NHS and, 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 and um, uh, you know, and someone else's problem and make it your own problem, then I think that goes a long way to, uh, you know, relieve that, um, that uh, supply and demand imbalance. And one, uh, you know, new area which is taking a lot of uh, attention at the minute is um, regenerative medicine. It's that, uh, you know, they, they say that um, the, the first person who lived to a thousand years has already been born. So there's a vast industry, you know, out, out there, longevity industry. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotal um, uh, evidence that um, a lot of these billionaires who look amazingly well, uh, they're not doing it because of Botox, but they're doing it because they're using, you know, some of those um, longevity uh, products, which, you know, I, I truly believe, you know, uh, is not just vitamin supplements. And uh, and I think sort of watch that space because that space is evolving rapidly. The regulators are not caught up with it because ultimately, well, how do you how do you design a clinical trial that proves that it's doubled <laughs> your life expectancy from 75 to 150? You're not going to run a clinical trial. So they need to find... They need to find proxies, they need to find surrogate endpoints, whatever it is, measures of oxidative stress or, you know, what, you know, but they need to find endpoints which can be accepted so people can go and do clinical trials so, so you can prove one and for all, yep, this is working, this is not. Uh, or else we better be prepared to a world of um, Jeff Bezos and uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, and their cohorts um, that live to 300 years old and the rest of us go, um, you know, somewhere between 70 and 100. Um, yes, that doesn't sound a particularly desirable world. But <laughs> <laughs> On that topic, I think we shall move on to our favourite questions. So we'll throw these at you and we'll get your brief answers. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made? I'm, I'm happy to take this one from a life science perspective, Brian. So mm-hmm. uh, no, I'm, I'll just give you two, actually. And there's a reason why I wanted to talk to these two. Um, firstly, a, a company up in Scotland called Microplate DX, uh, which aims to tackle antimicrobial resistance with its patented diagnostic test. One of the reasons that, you know, I wanted to chat to you about this is they raised two and a half million pound and actually quite unusually for a company that's still, you know, relatively early in that it only spun out of the University of Strathclyde some 12 to, you know, 14 months ago. As part of this round of investment, there was actually three other institutions that invested alongside DeepBridge. You tend to find, you know, early in the, in a company's life cycle, you know, you have to take you know, do a lot of the hard yards yourself as a funder and perhaps be the only check for you know the first number of milestones. But with micro, you know, with Microplate, they've you know they've done incredibly well and you know, testament to the management team there you know, to to raise that. And I guess the other one following that theme would be Ibis Vision. Um, so Ibis have developed a patented uh, method of visual field testing. Um, so. Think kind of telemedicine for you know optometrists. Um, it's a revolutionising you know the optical industry. They actually raised four and a half million, and um, you know the lead investor was a US fund, uh, and that particular US fund uh, called Compiler. They set up the fund when they sold their business their business to Vision Express or Grand Vision, who owns Vision Express. So you know we, we're, we're really pleased that one of our portfolio companies has you know a, a very significant strategic Series A investor on the cap table that's supporting them on their commercial strategy. Mm-hmm. That sounds promising. Absolutely. So, in the classic VC triumvirate of market product and management, we know they're all important, but which one for you is the most important? Go on, Savas, I answered the last one, but I'll give you my view once you've said yours. <laughs> you know, look, it, it, it's always, for me, it's always going to be management. Product can change, uh, markets can change, uh, you can pivot a product, you know, especially the stage of companies that we, you know, we're not investing in GlaxoSmithKline. We're investing in early stage businesses. Management is the be all and end all. Doesn't mean we don't look at markets and products, but you know, the ability to actually back a management team that can actually execute a plan, have the, the adaptive intelligence to be able to actually, you know, d- d- change if the circumstances around them change. 
you can't you know that that's that's um an amazing ingredient to have yeah i mean exactly the same answer from me it has to be management whilst we do as part of our dd look at product and market of course we do you know you can have a decent product win a very big you know very big market but if you have a terrible management team you know it's going to get nowhere mm-hmm. okay tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it I probably fail every day at something. So, um, you know, I don't want to tell you, you know, all of my secrets as to what I, I guess from a, you know, looking at it if on the topic of this call, you know, there's been a number of, you know, opportunities, investment opportunities where, you know, having gone through the DD process, having gone through a number of the conversations, you know, they, they decided not necessarily to go with me and Deepbridge, you know, for their first investments. And I think, you know, you always learn from those discussions and, you know, and conversations. Sometimes when you reflect on it, there's, there, there's simply nothing you could have done. But on occasion, there'll be times where you think, actually, if I would have, you know, removed that objection before it got to it, then perhaps maybe I would have been successful. So I think, you know, just because of the topic of this conversation, I'll, I'll go with that. But I'm constantly failing, constantly learning, and I think it's the right thing to do. Savas, have you ever failed at anything in your life? No, I'm infallible. You know, me and the Pope are, are, at, are at different levels. Uh, now. <laughs> jo- no, joking aside, it's uh, you know Ben's right. We, you know, we um, vet- venture investment is designed. To, to actually, you know, get you to do something which is irrational. Uh-huh. It is not rational to run towards danger. That's why, you know, fire people get trained to trust their equipment, to trust those around them, to trust their training, to trust, you know, what their eyes tell them about the danger. They're not going to run into danger to die, but they are doing it in a, you know, in a, in a, in a reasoned way. And venture is simply that you run towards danger. You basically have to embrace taking risk. You do not want a steady as she, as she goes existence. And if that's what you know, that, if that's what your what makes you happy. If lack of stress makes you happy, then you shouldn't be in venture. So when you're taking that amount of risk, things fail all the time. So uh, you know, uh, we we have that on a, on a daily basis, but we. You know, we focus not on things which we fail. We we focus on things that we do to reduce the probability of failure. We focus on the things that we do to actually uh, uh, recover from failure. Uh, so if you fall down, how can you get up? And 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 if the signal of failure is clear, then we also learn to uh, accept that that's the case and 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 uh, allocate our time elsewhere which is which is going to be more valuable to our portfolio yeah so the eis industry in which we work is great in many ways but it's far from perfect is there anything you'd like to change about it <laughs> now that's a very sensitive and political question who's going to be who's going to be listening to this uh, can we just change the hmrc to be a bit more human rather than computer says no on many occasions <laughs> i did that out please pause it at the end <laughs> Uh, you know, that's not my answer. You know, look, um, you know, the EIS industry and VCT industry have been an absolute godsend to the, there's a starting place for a lot of technologies out of this country. It is, you know, a real boost to the economy in the UK um, to have the the EIS and uh, VCT, you know, industry backing new emerging technologies from the knowledge economy, be the general tech or, or, or life sciences. There are at times limitations within, within EIS regulation. The regulator is aware of that. The government is supportive, and I'm sure those uh, adjustments, uh, you know, are going to be made. But ultimately, having good EIS managers, I think, is the is the you know is the is the starting point towards having a you know a, a strong industry. And I think having a number of EIS uh, managers out there is also healthy. It creates competition. Uh, it means that deals get well funded. And you know, given the opportunities that we see every day, the vast majority of EIS providers also know that often working alongside each other and co-investing is also valuable. The stats are very clear. If a business has 
It goes from having one institutional investor to having three institutional investors. Probability of success goes up by nearly 50%. So that's the challenge for the industry. Can it learn to work together? I think the only thing I'd add to that as well is kind of, you know, an observation around you know, geographically the distribution of capital. Um, so, you know, one of the things that yeah, I, I know is happening out there with kind of the leveling up agenda as well is just working out how we can push you know, capital to to the regions. And, and I think that's something that everybody's aware of, you know, that there are plans in place to, you know, to look at that and, and you know, facilitate change. But certainly an observation for me when I look at the data is and the statistics is, yeah, there is obviously a high proportion of it certainly goes to certain areas of the country. Yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely a desire to try and rectify that. I think the efforts to date have had limited success might be the, the charitable yeah. way of putting it. They haven't done nothing, but and they haven't made no progress, but I think there's a long way to go. Agreed, agreed. So as listeners know, I'm an avid reader and always looking for suggestions. Is there anything out there you like and would really recommend? Uh, last book I, I was going to say last book I read, but last book I listened to uh, because I tend to uh, do most of my reading via um, would probably be Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. So you know, t- Sav talked about uh, regenerative medicine. So Tim is you know one of the the world leading biohackers, and yeah, you know, I find most of his you know most of his books pretty interesting. I've read most of them. Mm-hmm. I've read a couple, but not that one. Yeah, it's well worth it. Um, I recently read. I mean, it's not. It's not. Um, it's, it's not that old, but um, it, it is a biography uh, of um, the veritable uh, and very controversial Greek politician Andreas Papandreou by the then uh, U.S. ambassador in Athens. Um, you know, at the uh, an interesting time in. In not only in the evolution of, of Greece, uh, so it's called the, the book is called uh, Clever Greek. Uh, it's the uh, biography of uh, Andreas Papandreou as told through the friendship of the uh, U.S. ambassador. It is also, I think, uh, a really interesting, you know, book that sort of places a, a lot of the geopolitical changes that were happening not just in Greece but across the world and the role of. Um, you know the, the the only superpower at the time, and how the general sort of political uh, and economic ideas sort of emerged. Um, you know around socialism and around you know democracy and 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 around you, you know how you know you know politicians can often do things like political pivots, um, change their narrative so that they can actually get uh, populist um, uh, appeal uh, and get them into power, uh, you know, when conviction when conviction might not, you know, be right behind uh, every, everything that they do. So if you get a chance, it's very esoteric. It appealed to me because I grew up in that, uh, in that era yeah. of sort of 70s and 80s when Papandreou was coming out from you know, as an economist at Harvard, uh, you know, to become prime minister of Greece. Um, so, yeah, if, if you if you're into that sort of thing, read that. It does sound like sound like something that would expand my knowledge or in a, in a new area. So, it's probably worth a read. Thank you. What do you wish you knew when you started with DeepBridge that you know now? Ooh, good question. Um, whether I knew that, I mean, I probably I'll have a step of that first. I've asked, but I think you know to set stronger boundaries perhaps might be um the lesson that i would definitely teach myself um you know we've got a really large portfolio of companies you know as you can well imagine you know that they have multiple members of the board and the management team so you know we we now in a world where people are contactable 24 7 we're a hands-on investor but you know, with with, this, with, a, with such a large portfolio you, you can well imagine that whatsapp messenger text messages, mobile phone, desk phone, and email goes off very, very regularly at, you know, at all times of the evening. Yeah, my sympathies. Savas? I, I get, again, I, you know, reiterate what I said earlier. Um, I think the ability to make sure you prioritise your time, not on, you know, the problem child, but on the businesses that are actually making the most progress that are doing, you know, as well as as, as they should be, is probably something which I 
would have told myself, um, you know, when I when I started, because it, it is a difficult thing to 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 cut out the the noise. We've got a system now that allows us to have you know portfolio directors a better way to sort of you know take some of the noise away. But that's probably the the thing which would have changed how we do things, you know, in a huge way had I known that earlier. It seems to me that's a very difficult balance for a fund manager to strike because you don't want to be the sort of fund manager that says at the first problem you're going to cut and run. But at the same time, as you say, you can be very easily sucked into things that are kind of going nowhere. So, yeah, I I have sympathy in terms of sort of trying to get that balance right. I mean, traditional, you know, very books on venture, um, you know, investing, it is a subject which has been debated on Nordzoom and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's no right and wrong answers and ultimately yeah. you've got to have, you surround yourself with good people to be able to make those type of decisions where you devote your, your resources. And just as a small correction, it's not clever Greek, it's gifted Greek. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm the clever Greek. He's the... <laughs> <laughs> We shall post a link in the show notes anyway. <laughs> so if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at DeepBridge, where should they go? Um, if you go to the uh, DeepBridge website, uh, Brian, um, www.deepbridgecapital.com, I think it tells you everything. Or email Andrew Aldridge directly. That is the best way to get any information you want. <laughs> okay. Andrew will be delighted when we put his email in our show notes. His email address. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on today, guys. It's been a real delight talking to you and finding out a little bit more about what you're doing. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. No problem, Brian. Great to chat. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on life sciences with Savas and Ben. It's great to tap into their knowledge and understand better how the sector works. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you liked what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at enquiries at Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time. <laughs>